Welcome to the Clinical Athletes Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Reese, and a really special guest today, we've got Paralympic and world champion cyclist Ross Wilson. Ross is a uh, multi-world champion on the track, as well as a three-time Olympic medalist in Rio de Janeiro with two silvers and a bronze. So before we get to Ross's interview, I would like to uh, just thank our sponsors, of which I don't really have any, but I would like to give a big shout out to an artist, a musical artist called Mon Plaisir, uh, or My Pleasure is the translation, a French artist who has some free music. And if you want to go to freemusicarchive.org uh, and search Mon Plaisir, uh, M-O-N-P-L-A-I-S-E-R, he supplies the music for my uh, podcast and it's free music. And I, I really appreciate some art, so, re- really appreciate that some artists out there are willing to do that for their uh, for their listeners. And it, it's some great music he's got going there. Or she, I don't know. Uh, but I would also uh, like to just point out near the end of the interview, Ross is going to talk about a fundraiser he has for the Paralympic uh, Foundation of Canada supporting athletes and raising awareness for the Paralympic uh, movement. He, him and a friend of his, another Paralympic cyclist, are going to be doing an Everesting attempt in the virtual world of Zwift, uh, doing some uh, Alpe de Zwift rides. That'll be taking place on December 27th. If you would like some more information on that, you can email foundation at paralympic.ca or check out their website. As well, Ross is uh, available on Instagram. Uh, his title, his handle is Ross H. Wilson. And also on Twitter at at 88 Roscoe with two S's at 88ROSSCO. So without uh, any further delay or ado, let's uh, get into the interview with Ross. All right. Well, as promised, our guest today is Ross Wilson, a friend of mine from the city of Edmonton and a Paralympic cyclist who's competed and medaled in both the World Championships and the Olympic Games. Ross, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Ken. Hey, yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Just a bit of a... Ross is a real trooper here. I forgot to hit record and we're about halfway through the interview and then uh, I realized I wasn't recording, but I'm looking at it now. We're definitely recording. So, Ross, as I mentioned, you're from Edmonton. Um, tell us a little bit about your uh, growing up in the city here. Yeah, so I born and raised in, in Sherwood Park, but just east of Edmonton, I guess. But um, I spent my entire life here and uh, yeah, I went to school at the University of Alberta and uh, um, yeah, I've just kind of a, a typical Edmonton guy, nothing too exciting about me, I guess. All right. As a kid, um, you know, you're a world-class cyclist now. Uh, as a kid, what kind of activities were you into? Yeah, as a kid, I wasn't really an athletic kid. I was, was, I mean, I dabbled in hockey. I played that for two or three years um, and I played rugby in in high school. Um, But really, if I was playing the sport, I was playing something where it was full contact or or physical in nature. And my job was to hit people um, just because I was a big kid. Um, But yeah, I I wasn't really particularly athletic. Uh, My main focus was was in music. And um, with my mom being an immigrant from Scotland, I played bagpipes and uh, and my obsession was really just playing bagpipes. I, I lived and breathed bagpipes kind of nonstop, and I loved it sort of thing. Um, I was involved in, in pipe bands in the city and in solo competitions and had chances to kind of 
uh, travel over Scotland for, for competitions and all over Canada itself as well. So that was my, my main focus. All right. So interesting uh, road from uh, world-class bagpiper to world-class cyclist. But uh, any other kind of sports you did as a younger kid or you're pretty much an inactive kind of, well, rugby, I guess, is a sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I would largely characterize myself as inactive. I played golf, but I mean, you can make the argument that golf is a game, not a sport. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to wade into that competition. I, yeah, but no, I was, uh, like I said, I was interested in, in music and, 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 and kind of the arts as, as opposed to sports. Ah, excellent. How far did you go with the, uh, how did you said you went to Scotland? Did, how far did you go as a bagpiper? Yeah, no. So I, uh, I, I was always an amateur. I never actually transitioned into it to being a professional. So I wasn't paid for my competitions and I didn't get uh, prize money, but, uh, I reached kind of the highest levels of amateur com- competition in solo categories and in, in Python fan categories. I was able to compete at the world championships, uh, twice. And, um, yeah, I had a chance to, to compete at some, some pretty major events. Um, and to, to play alongside some some pretty cool kind of uh, other individuals. I, uh, the last competition I did was it was just outside the, the shadow of Edinburgh Castle, and uh, it was a chance to play in front of some pretty esteemed judges. And yeah, it was just a it was a great kind of life to be part of, and a, a really fun environment. All right, and uh, so <clears throat> the the condition you have, Charcot Marie Tooth Disease, is a neurogenitor. Uh, neuromuscular disease uh and so you must have noticed i guess with bagpiping that you probably lost some ability to bagpipe but what were some of the other indicators that kind of made you think hey something's not quite right here yeah i mean it kind of the telltale symptoms that uh, that you see with the cmt and certainly ones that i exhibited were, were weaknesses in my ankles and my lower legs and so uh, I would roll my ankles very easily and I trip a lot. Um, I had some coordination issues like running is kind of out of the question because you, you end up developing a double drop foot. Um, and then I have uh, a, a lot of sensitivity to, to extreme, to colds and to heats. So, uh, if it's cold outside because there's, there's very little muscle or uh, insulation on my hands or my feet or something like that. It, it feels like uh, ice, uh, like ice picks or, or needles kind of going into your fingers. So it's really, really unpleasant that way. Um, and then, yeah, just my, my dexterity uh, really was the, one of the big obvious pieces. Uh, like if I dropped a jar of, of coins or something like that, I, I pretty much write them off or I have to get somebody else to pick them up because I just, I can't actually grab or pull something off the ground that's that fine. Um, so and that's, yeah, that's, um, sorry, I was just going to say it was kind of like insert Scottish joke here that you dropped a jar yeah, of pennies. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, it's How hard, hard to, is that? Hard to pinch them together when you can't even pinch, right? So. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off there. So, um, yeah, so so bending over to pick things up became quite an issue. Yeah, and just just um, uh, the other piece would just be like um, just general mobility, right? Like walking is, is harder because you, you can't you don't necessarily have the ability to correct your balance, and you don't have uh, the dexterity in your feet or anything. And so, yeah, it was just a whole host of things which became very obvious as my life progressed along, sort of thing. Okay, so after your diagnosis, you, it even wasn't still at this point you got into cycling. So, what was the uh, what was the draw to get you into picking up a bike and and becoming uh, a racer? 
Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was, a, it was my annual physical with my doctor in, in roughly 2012. Uh, I went in and he kind of said, you know, like uh, at this point in my life, because I played bagpipes and I really I enjoyed the pub life that was associated with playing bagpipes, I'd, I'd put on a lot of weight. And I'd always been a heavy guy, but I was up to 280 pounds or so. And the doctor said, look, you've got all the symptoms and we've done some initial testing to say that you have shark Mary tooth. It's not going to get any easier carrying extra weight will actually make it worse your chances of hurting yourself and, and falling or chances of even just living that kind of uh wholesome life are, are really impacted by this and so you need to address this and you need to do something to change so over the the course of a year i took his advice and i took it very seriously and i, I lost about 110 pounds i got down to around 160 um and once i was down at that weight being uh, a child of the 80s and having watched uh tapes of greg lamond and uh, bernard you know and living through the lance armstrong mania and the whole live strong kind of campaigns uh, i was very aware of cycling and i i thought it was a, a really cool sport but prior to losing weight uh, as a 280 pound guy dressing up in spandex and looking like a overstuffed sausage didn't appeal to me but now that i was down around 160 i figured well this would still be ugly but maybe it won't be so off-putting that people will throw up and so i found myself a road bike and i, I kind of got into it Great. And your first race, how did you, what made you decide that, uh, you know, you buy a bike for staying fit and now you want to try racing? Yeah, it was a friend of mine who was watching the, uh, the 2012 Paralympics with uh, her, her class at school. She works in Hempton School and works with kids with autism and, and other developmental disabilities. And so they showcase these kind of events to, to kids to show that there is opportunities in life and that um, there is no limitations really for them. Uh, and she recognized another cyclist by the name of Anthony Zong from the States who had a lot of the similar symptoms and, and looked very similar to me. And so she said, have you ever thought about racing and ever thought about maybe trying to go to the Paralympics? And um, so I tried the Rundle Mountain stage race down in Canmore and uh, I, I fell in love with, with racing despite uh, not necessarily getting the greatest result. I just really enjoyed the process and the training that led up to it. And I really enjoyed taking those risks on the day and just going fast. Um, and from there, I, I ended up calling the national team um, directly and talking to Sebastian Travers, the head coach, and saying, you know, I want to be involved. I think I am classifiable and all this. And they said, well, you need medical documentation and you need to come to nationals next year. So I went through the whole process of getting uh, formal testing and having genetic testing done and getting my condition fully documented by medical experts. And in 2014, I went to uh, national championships, walked away with two silver medals and uh, an invitation to, to go to a World Cup in Spain with the national team. Um, and at that World Cup, in my very first event, I walked away with a bronze medal and a fourth place in the road race. And after that, I was kind of off to the races with the national team. Oh, awesome. And you've had the, uh, well, you, you worked hard enough and, and you had the opportunity to compete for Canada at a world-class level in the uh, world championships and in the Rio Olympic games. Can you tell us some interesting stories, uh, about those races, about the competition maybe the level of competition? Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess my most interesting, most interesting story is just even, uh, uh, 2015, like, um, at the start of 2015, the team told me they wanted me to try track cycling. And so, um, I, they sent me a bike in the mail and I, I started to learn about riding a fixed gear and everything. And, um, I, I was fortunate enough that at the national championships in early in that uh, year, 
I, my performance was enough to get me selected for the track world championships. And in March of uh, that year, I went to Appledore, Netherlands and raced against the others in that category and walked away with a, a silver medal in my first ever kind of track race. Um, but even just looking at the level of athleticism there, my, my main competitor in track cycling for a long time was a, as a Chinese competitor. Um, but by the last name of Lee, his first name, unfortunately, I can't really pronounce it. I think it's Zhang Zi Li, uh, essentially. Um, but it, he's he's just an incredible kind of athlete. Uh, he can do a, a kilo, which is from a standing start, riding one kilometer, so four laps of the track, in around one minute and 11, one minute and 12 seconds. Uh, to put that into perspective, like a world, the world's fastest time for a one, one kilometer race is around uh, one minute flat. And so this guy is, is just off the world's strongest and uh, like he's reaching speeds of just just over 60k an hour in, in under a minute sort of thing so he just he, he starts so incredibly fast uh even myself like we do three kilometer pursuits around four minutes which is on par with uh with elite with elite level women at the olympic games so the level of athleticism is, is really high um uh, yeah so that's I mean, that gives you some perspective about just what it's like in the games. Um, the other thing I would say in 2015 was just uh, I had a crash. And so uh, a bit of a struggle even getting to the Paralympics in, in June of that year. Uh, while I was in Yverdon, Les Bains, Switzerland, a car backed out of the spot and I went through the back window and uh, broke ribs, broke my uh, collarbone, broke my uh, some of my vertebrae, ended up with uh, cuts that ran from the back of my neck to the front, um, a cut that, that wraps around my right forearm and, and went through the entire muscle. Um, and the cut on my neck was one one inch from my carotid artery, so I, I basically dodged a bullet and was was saved by my coach who, who stemmed the bleeding at the, the accident and uh, until I could get to the hospital. But I mean, just that year alone, I was able to to return from that accident and still compete at the Toronto 2015 Pan Am Games. Unfortunately, I crashed at the end of the very of the road race on the very first day and ended up back in the hospital and having surgery to actually rebuild bones that uh, that were destroyed. But uh, it was a bit of a, a bumpy road even getting to the Paralympic Games. And yeah, it's it's, it's just been a, a bit of a wild ride. Wow. Awesome. So it's probably difficult for you to say because before your diagnosis, you weren't really involved in cycling, but now you, you know, you're, you're, you know, I follow you on Strava and pretty much, I don't know how you find time to work with all the cycling you're doing, but do you think your training is much different than say, uh, an able-bodied track cyclist? Um, well, yeah, I, I think there is some unique elements to it. So, uh, depending on the, the track cyclist you're speaking of, so, so sprinters are, are one category of track cyclists. Um, their training is 100% night and day different. Uh, I mean, like a long session for them is, is 10 minutes. Uh, they, they work on very explosive kind of power and they spend more time resting between efforts than they do actually doing efforts. Uh, my focus is much more the endurance side. So if I look at an, an able-bodied endurance athlete on the men's side, um, if they do an individual pursuit, it's a, a 4K individual pursuit. For me, it's a 3K individual pursuit. So it's a, a different kind of window. 
uh, and why that's important is once you start talking about a fourth paper suit, you're talking about a, a, the length of an effort where you're actually using predominantly your aerobic system, and so you're maximizing your aerobic system. Whereas at three kilometers, it's still short enough that it's anaerobic dominance. Just the, the start is that much more important, and just reaching the top speed as fast as possibly becomes important. But you're only really in your aerobic system for maybe two minutes of that entire effort. Whereas with the 4K, it, it is about staying like at your peak threshold for the entire duration. And it's about pacing and ensuring that you don't touch your anaerobic unless you absolutely have to kind of thing. Um, so it's a it, it, different kind of flair to it. So I do a lot more uh, uh, sprint-specific training for my starts and for my first kind of part of my effort. But then I also have to layer on that aerobic component so that you don't fade at the end. Um, so uh, instead of just doing like five really hard efforts separated by tons of rest, I have to do five really hard efforts. And then I have to find a way to add in another one to two hours of base riding to help build that aerobic piece as well. Uh, even when I look at my time trials, like a time trial for a paracyclist, a, a long time trial in competition is around 20 25 kilometers, whereas able body, I mean, the gold standard is the 40k TT, and so I still train for the 40k TT because you need that aerobic system for that that shorter effort. But then you need to also focus on your peak anaerobic power as well because that's really what's going to translate to um, your peak speed in more of a sprint nature time trial. And so it's just the, the events because they are different lengths and different durations. They change how you train. Um, and then the, the, the final piece is, uh, I mean, I'm not built the same as an as a able-bodied person, right? Like physiologically, uh, we're not the same. I, I literally don't have the same wiring as it were, right? Uh, and so uh, for me, if I do a whole a whole bunch of, of hard anaerobic system sort of work, what happens is my uh, my neurological system uh, kind of gets fried, and so I lose coordination, I lose uh, ability uh, just to even function, and so to to do to do a really hard block of anaerobic is is very hard on me. So I need to spread it out a lot more. So I use more of a a linear approach as opposed to a pure periodization approach, um, just to make sure that I've kind of allowed for that. Uh, and then the other piece is just the recovery aspect, uh, because I do have that kind of compromised uh, system. Recovering takes is that much harder. Um, so a lot of people, able-bodied athletes, they'll go to altitude for training. Whereas for me, if I go to altitude to actually recover from just being at altitude, puts me in such a state that training isn't really possible. And so there's no benefit to going. And so it's, you find other kind of workarounds. And so a lot of it is just you maintain your, your base level of fitness and you try and peak for key events, but it, it's, you never really have a complete off season as it were, if you never turn off from doing some of that anaerobic work and prepping for all these other components as well. Right. So speaking of your, your aerobic and anaerobic components, our first interaction, I think there used to be a cancer fundraising ride out here, kind of the end of the season wrap up ride, the Rogers Harvest ride. And I don't know if you remember, but that's where you and I uh, first met. And about you being that we work at the same place, uh, and uh, like I knew, you know, with the internal communications, I knew what you look like, and I thought, hey, that looks like this Ross guy. I'm going to go have a chat with him, and as I usually do, you know, I I push my luck, and I go, hey, yeah, nice to meet you. And we chat, and I go, hey, you want to do a study? 
And so you agreed to help me and a couple of students out uh, with a project we were putting on. And we just measured your VO2 max on the bike, your power outputs and things like that. So we basically, well, I think what's super interesting is, you know, we compared you to the, the let's call them the average Charcot-Marie tooth patient. And they have a VO2 max of somewhere just above 20 on average. Your VO2 max was uh, approaching 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute and about five liters of, of absolute oxygen consumption, which is pretty amazing. Puts you in line fairly close within 10 milliliters of a world-class track able-bodied cyclist, which is just amazing. When you think, so for those of you unfamiliar with Charcot-Marie Tooth, um, and, and Ross, you, you can you can confirm this. Uh, it's a peripheral degenerative disease. So you your lower legs and your your uh, distal arms are are quite small. You don't have a lot of muscle mass down there, so you're relying on the muscle mass of your upper legs, uh, and and to to consume that much oxygen with you know. S- 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 such a well, a, a significantly smaller amount of of muscle is, is 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 truly amazing. Anyways, and yeah, so just I mean, what? Yeah, just anyways. Any comments on that? <laughs> I mean, I I, I I would argue that my arms are pretty big. I mean, I work on those biceps all the time. Come on, man. <laughs> no, it's um yeah. I mean. With my particular symptoms, it's basically below the knee. I have no no muscular tone and no ability to use. So it's 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 really all my pedaling is driven from from my thighs and my hips and my glutes. And so that's that's really the bulk of my power. And so yeah, I mean, my wife likes to give me a hard time that I'm at the stage where I almost need to order custom pants because they fit in the waist, they fit in the the lower legs, but then the the thighs and the butt just that uh, you can't do them up kind of thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes wish I had that problem, but uh, unfortunately, I don't. I have no excuses. Uh, yeah. So, so well, first of all, thanks for for doing that with my students and and with myself. It was a, a great learning experience for us. Um, nice so, for the ego, right? So, <laughs> yeah, well, that that's true. So, what uh, what does the future hold for Ross Wilson? What kind of rate? I'd say it's a. I you know I want to be politically correct. Uh, it's a unusual year uh in terms of covid-19 everything's canceled we i think there is it looks possible that the tokyo olympics may be a go for 2021 um what any other races you have on your schedule or training camps yeah i mean um i don't actually know about tokyo 2021 i don't know what uh what the future holds with it as as it stands right now if they were happening tomorrow i'd be on the team but uh who's to say what it's like in september i mean uh, i think one of the interesting things when you start to look at those games is uh for those athletes you really need to be able to in a position to really make that that conscious choice and understand how it impacts your life so to go to those games you're talking about uh, a two-week isolation period when you first arrive, then competing, and then coming home and having another two-week isolation period. And so for a lot of Paralympians, um, the fact of the matter is, is, is they work full-time and they have careers, and and this is kind of their their, their side hobby. Being a professional athlete is not the, the, the end-all end be-all to them. It's not their, their means of survival. And so, uh, and, and a lot of us, I mean, I'm... I'm in my late thirties now. My mother is kind of in that key key risk demographic, and so going to those games and potentially contracting something that comes home with me, you have to really kind of think about it. So, 
yeah, I don't know. The, the Tokyo 2021, there's a whole host of things that will, will have to be examined there. Um, but what I'm really focusing on is, is a lot of the other stuff that we can do in between then and now. Um, so like this last summer, my, my friend and I, Tristan Chernov, also on the, the paracycling team, we did a, a big fundraiser gravel ride in BC and we raised $30,000 for the Paralympic Foundation. Um, we're planning to do a, a similar kind of thing in December. Um, none of us can go on, on training camps. And so we're going to do a V Everesting camp <laughs> here in, uh, in our own homes. Uh, and in December 27th, we're going to try and complete a V Everest thing. So it's like 8,800 meters of virtual climbing on Zwift. So we'll probably aim to use the, the Alpha Zwift and try and go up that nine times in, in the course of one single ride. And so we're going to try and build that as being like, instead of spending your money to go away somewhere because you can't anymore, um, put some of that money towards the Paralympic Foundation, support the, the development of the next gen athletes for the Paralympics here in Canada, help support the Paralympic movement. Uh, and we're going to use that as a chance to, to raise awareness about um, a whole host of uh, different activities, whether it be perceptions about what a Paralympic athlete and a paracyclist can actually do and kind of changing people's ideas about what it means to be disabled um, through just making them aware of just the, some of the funding shortfalls and the challenges that are presented by by the Paralympics for those athletes and just trying to help bridge the gap to, to give a, give more people opportunities like I've had in my life. Great. So that's uh, December 27th. You plan the virtual Everesting. So why did you choose, um, why did you choose Alp to Zwift? You're just looking for a long, continuous climb? Well, you, I mean, you're talking about Everesting. You kind of need to pick uh kind of need to pick a mountain right i mean i i know that there's a whole host of other options out there I mean, if you're really going for the fastest possible and you're, you're trying to do it as quick as you can what you do is you find uh, a very straight steep climb something like the, the radio tower climbing lift just because it's you gain the most altitude in the least amount of time uh, we picked the alpha zwift because well it's hard. It's, it's a challenge in and of itself. And so we want to try and have more people come and support us and take part with us and ride alongside of it alongside us. And so for, for people who are new to cycling or something like that, maybe this becomes their, their first hard event that they do. And they just want to get up at once with us or something like that, or they want to train with us in the, in the month and a half leading up to it so that they can climb it once themselves or something. Um, the other thing is, I mean, it simulates up the, up the list, right? Which is like, um, I, I you can make all sorts of arguments, but I'd say it's kind of Mecca for, for road cycling. It's, it's one of the coolest mountains in France. And it's cool to say that you've done something on something that even simulates it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll do a couple laps with you, a couple, a couple climbs with you. I'll, I'll uh, commit to that. And, uh, if, if people want to watch you attempt this and well, you, it's not going to be an attempt cause I'm going to text you and make sure that you're still going, but, uh, how can, how can they uh, follow you? Yeah, so there'll be um, a bunch of publication coming out on the Paralympic Foundation of Canada's website in the in the coming weeks and through the Facebook groups that will exist as, and the, through the Twitter and Instagram accounts for the Paralympic Foundation or even through my own uh, Twitter or Instagram 
uh, accounts, you'll be able to find information about it, um, including links to sites where you can donate, links to, to sites with information about where you can, uh, how you can train, um, when we'll be riding, when we'll be doing training rides so that you can participate with us, um, or you can even send me a message directly through those as well. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would say your best, your best source of information is going to be the Paralympic Foundation of Canada's uh, website. Okay, perfect. Now, in our first interview, where I forgot to hit record, you were, you know, I think this is even a more spectacular feat in that you openly admit that you're one of the strongest climbers out there. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm in a diet mode right now to try and lose some weight, but I'm, I'm mid one eighties right now. And climbing is not my forte. I mean, even, even when you look at my pedal stroke, like my ankles don't work. And when you look at the, the way that power develops through, through the, the pedal stroke on a climb, as soon as you change that angle of attack, what, what you see is that the kind of that key power zone shrinks as soon as you add that elevate, elevation element. And so it makes it that much harder. Uh, I mean, I know you're flat with his whip, but it's, it's constant pressure throughout the entire pedal stroke. And being a heavy guy and, and, and having to do a lot of watts, it's going to be hard. I mean, I think for me to do a climb on the opposite Zwift in, in around an hour, I have to hold mid 250s for, for wattage. So that's, I mean, that's a pretty big ask. And I'm going to try and do that for like 12 hours or something stupid like that, right? So okay. it's, it's going to burn, I think, around 9,000, 10,000 calories over the course of the day. So it should jumpstart my, my base training and, uh, you know, get me to race weight. Nice part. Yeah, might as well do it all in one day. Actually, I was uh, <laughs> just pulling up before here, you knowing we talked about the VF stream, and I was going to ask you a uh, projected time for yourself. So it looks like about 12 hours, and I was looking at the uh, recent records. Uh, currently, uh, sub seven hours is the world record. Yeah, I think 22 seconds, 659.38 by Sean Gardner. Yeah, I, I think it, it, for us, like I, I know that some paracyclists have done everything attempts. I, I'm not aware of anybody who's done a V everything attempt. So at the end of the day, if Tristan and I complete this, Tristan, who is uh, an absolute beast on the bike, he, he will likely set a world record for a paracyclist. Uh, and I think the Canadian record is around 10 hours and 30 minutes for a V everything attempt. And I legitimately think Tristan's got a shot of feeding that. I'm just looking to finish it myself. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of scheduling around an hour to an hour at 10 for each climb. So that's, I don't know, nine to 10 hours of climbing plus, uh, I think it's 10 minutes descending in between. So that's an hour and a half. So yeah, we're talking about a 12 hour ride in total if everything goes according to plan. Uh, and I'm not busy throwing up too often. So. Right. Yeah. And don't forget to eat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good excuse, right? So Exactly. All right, Ross. Hey, thanks very much. We'll look forward to your ever seeing attempt coming up and uh, best of luck in training. Hopefully Tokyo will be a safe event to attend and a, um, and, and one that you'll get to do. I know we're all getting a little stir crazy with uh, being indoors and um, good luck. I know living in the same city as me now you dealing with snow outside and so the outdoor riding has come to an end so enjoy your indoor riding and uh i'll see you on strava sounds great thanks for having me ken great thanks very much well once again a big thanks to ross wilson uh great interview uh guy who uh trains really really hard i can attest to works really really hard uh, once again, I'd like to thank Ross for the interview. I would like to thank uh, Montplacer for the uh, 
music for the podcast and check in in the near future when we'll be interviewing more interesting athletes. Thanks very much. I'm Ken Reese. Oh, 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 oh,